and it is great to be with you. Uh, I do want to wish Bethany Community Church a happy anniversary. I believe that this is uh, the year anniversary. It may be next week. I thought it was this week because we uh, initially, Daniel and I, had decided not to switch pulpits this week because this was supposed to be the anniversary, I thought, but then he thought that so many people would be gone during the holiday weekend that he would put that celebration off for a week and make me come to a less than full auditorium. <laughs> and so here I am, and it's good to be with you. But also, uh, congratulations to Ben and Casey Davidson, who I believe have just brought home their uh, bundle of joy from Ethiopia. And let's praise God for that. I think Ben and I were especially interested in Ethiopia because of their distance-running prowess, so I think he's hoping that that might run, rub off on him and he will regain his glory days of distance-running. Um, we'll see how that works. Apologies to those of you who are disappointed that Pastor Daniel isn't here this morning. Um, I know how you feel. I remember the first time that... Uh, Rich Burkle was gone from the pulpit after I had given my life to Christ, and I was very disappointed to find someone else come in and speak on his behalf, but little did I know that that morning the Lord would call me into full-time ministry, and so beware. Beware. You never know what the Lord's going to do through me, right? Uh, we as a fellowship of churches decide to do this pulpit switch so that you would ultimately be encouraged uh, by hearing other voices of uh, teaching pastors in the fellowship, or, or that you would be left with the understanding of how wonderful Daniel is. Now, if it is that which you conclude, then don't tell me, okay? Only tell me if you're thankful to hear other voices in the fellowship. Well, it's wonderful to be here, and... Uh, if you've noticed an increase in the attendance this morning after you look at your records, know that it's just because I brought six others with me, my family, and uh, we tend to have a big impact on church attendance. Uh, I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Romans. This morning we are going to look at uh, the first passage in the book of Romans, but specifically uh, we're going to focus this morning on Romans chapter 1, verses, really verses 2 uh, through 7. As you know, and as you can see in your Bibles, the, the book of Romans was penned by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul is the human author, but we understand that it is ultimately God who is the author of the book of Romans. Uh, we recall what Paul says elsewhere, that all Scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable for you and I. But Paul introduces himself as the human author, and he in introduces himself in a very unique way, but it ought not to be unique because the things that Paul says of himself in verse 1 ought to be true of you and I if we are followers of Jesus Christ. If you and I have given our lives to Jesus Christ, then we ought to be able to introduce ourselves in a like fashion as Paul has done in verse 1 as we look at that briefly. First of all, he introduces himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. It was a joyful slave-master relationship that Paul was portraying here. Uh, really, 
reflective of what is seen in the Old Testament when a servant or a slave would be granted his freedom after a period of time. And rather than leave the household of his master, he would go to the doorpost and allow his master to drive an awl through his ear. Of course, it would be taken out. Don't worry, he's not going to stay there. But that was to show I am tethering myself, so to speak, to this household. I love my master and I want to do his will. I am a bond slave of my servant. That's what Paul is saying here. He is a servant or a slave or a bond slave of Christ. And so must we be. If we have given our lives to Jesus Christ, then that is what we are called to do. I think it's sometimes unfortunate that uh, we use different terms to talk about our salvation experience. And one of them that can be good if we teach through it, but can be unfortunate if we do not, is when we say, well, I asked Jesus into my heart. And if you ask any six or seven or eight-year-old, what does that mean? Well, they'll get a little confused. They know they did it, but they don't know exactly what it means. To have asked Jesus Christ into their heart means to give Him full control of their mind, their will, and their emotions. I think it's probably a better way to state it to say that I've given my life to Jesus Christ. Scripture says we have been bought with a price and we are no longer ours, but our own, but we are Christ's. And so Paul says that he's a slave of Christ, so must we be. Secondly, he says that he is a sent one of Jesus Christ. He's a sent one. That means he has been commissioned to carry the gospel wherever he is commissioned to. You and I are also called to be sent ones. We are left in the world, but we are called not to be of the world. We are called to take the message both near and far. And so Paul says that he's a sent one, and we must also think of ourselves that way. And finally, he introduces himself in verse 1 as having been set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the gospel of God. In other words, if you were to reduce that down, what he's telling us is that he is a worker for God. He's been set apart. He does not see his life as compartmentalized as, okay, this is my Sunday activity, and then the rest of the week belongs to me. Sunday belongs to God, but the rest of the week belongs to me. In other words, Paul says that I am a worker in all aspects of my life for God and for the gospel that he has sent me with. When we think of the Apostle Paul, we ought to marvel at his life. What was it that compelled him to do so much on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ? What was it that compelled him to live such a, uh, an amazing life on behalf of the Savior that he served? In other words, uh, we think of certain passages and we think, wow, that is remarkable the way the Apostle Paul listened to this, the way he lived. He says at one point to the Corinthians in order to convey to them that he was sold out to the gospel and therefore he was a servant of theirs. He says, here's my, here's my history. I've been, beaten, uh, I've been beaten times without number for the gospel. He says, I've been placed often in danger of death. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
He says, once I was stoned. For the younger ones here, that means with rocks. Stoned, rock, okay. Usually goes over well, but uh, that's okay. Usually it rolls and I have to stop because... uh, Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day in the deep, he says. I have been on frequent journeys. Listen, he says, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I I think we're seeing a pattern here. We might even call him Paul danger of Sarsus. Paul says, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And we would read that and we would say, Paul, what was it that compelled you to live such a remarkable life on behalf of the Savior that you served? Why would any human being be so sold out for the ministry of the gospel? Surely God's voice could be heard in his ears saying, Relax, Paul. Relax. You don't have to work so hard. Paul, I'm sovereign. Relax. Just blend in somewhere. Get a nice job making tents. Take a wife, Paul. Enjoy this short life. Take it easy. Why was it that Paul didn't heed that voice? It wasn't from God, but it's a worldly voice that you and I can sometimes fall prey to. But not if we hear what compelled Paul to live the life that he lived as he introduces himself here in Romans chapter 1. You know, all those things that I've just mentioned, I'm attracted to all of those. The easy life, the the life of, of leisure, not trying to labor so hard on behalf of the gospel. I have a nice wife. I have five children. Uh, those people who I long to spend more time with often. Uh, I have, uh, but, but now I, I've, I've heeded this voice that tells me to go and, and, and counsel people when I'm not preaching, calls me and calls you to, to tell young couples that I'm counseling for marriage, don't live together, calls me to tell wives who are struggling with their marriage and desiring to leave their husbands, don't leave and let's let God work here, tells me to tell youth to remain pure so that they might have God's best in their life. All those things that I'm certain are going to make people mad at me, all the things that Paul had to tell people that he was certain would oftentimes put him at odds with the culture that he lived in. And why? Why do we sometimes grow attracted to the other things? It's because we've lost sight, here it is, of the promise of the gospel. 
Paul introduces himself in verse 1, but then in verses 2 through 7, he introduces his message, that which compelled him to live the life that we see recorded in the pages of Scripture. It's because Paul had a message, and it was a message containing the promises of God. The gospel of promise is what I've entitled this message. All Too often today we lose sight of the promise that is in the gospel that through faith in Jesus Christ, in His death and His resurrection, we have been conferred eternal life, but also life that is abundant here and now. If we are willing to heed God's commands, it was reminded of me just recently by a friend that another pastor has said, when God says don't, He's not trying to rob us of our fun, our joy, our freedom. He's really saying don't hurt yourself. All of the commands that God gives us are trying to steer us in a way that would lead us to the abundance of life, the life that is promised in Jesus Christ. Paul would say later in the book of Romans, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that He rose you will be saved. But we must have lost sight that the gospel promises not only eternal life, but abundant life. Did you see that? I'm putting my watch up there. I heard a pastor say just a couple weeks ago that a young boy asked his dad, why did the pastor just put his watch up there? Why did he take it off and put it up there? What does that mean? And his father said to the young boy, absolutely nothing. (laughs) But it's there. I know you got that clock there. Um, mine's, mine's running slower, so I'm going to watch mine, okay? Kidding. This morning, I want us to focus our attention back on the gospel. The gospel of promise. And I want to direct your attention right now to these verses in Romans. I wish that you would follow along as I read out loud. And, and let me encourage you that if you've come this morning without a Bible to... Uh, to go and get yourself a Bible. It's so helpful to be able to watch as we read along, to follow along, to be fed by the Word of God so that when you reflect on it at a later time, you can go back and say, well, I remember it was on this page of my Bible. Problem is, I've got so many Bibles with different formats, I can never remember exactly where it is. But it's so helpful to carry your Bible to church, to send a message to others here at Five Point. Hey, you know what? Those people go in there and they're carrying their Bibles. What's up with that? So follow along with me as I read, and I'm going to begin in verse 1 and go through verse 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just pray and ask God to help us uh, to receive the realities of the promise of the gospel. Father, we thank you for this passage penned by the Apostle Paul, but ultimately given to us by you. And what an encouragement it is if we are willing to dwell on the gospel of promise. 
And Father, we would ask this morning that you would be so glorified through the preaching and teaching of your word that uh, you would that you would be fit to draw us closer to yourself. And if there be anyone here who is here because they are exploring the claims of Christianity, exploring the claims of the one who died and rose again, Father, that you would draw them to yourself through repentance of their sin and forgiveness of their sins and eternal life and abundant life in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to be reminded this morning that the gospel is the good news of God exactly because it is a gospel of promise. In the gospel, we read elsewhere that no matter how many are the promises of God, they are all amen or they are all yes, they are all affirmed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to be reminded this morning as this passage leads us to the reminding of that the gospel is the good news of God. It's the good news of God because in the gospel, God delivers on promises. That's what Paul wants us to understand about his message that he sends to the Romans, the believers at Rome. And we're going to see about those promises that, first of all, God delivers on the promises of the prophets Secondly, we're going to see that God delivers on the promise of a Savior. And finally, we're going to see that God delivers on the promise of reconciliation. Let's begin with the first, the promise of the prophets. In the gospel of God, God delivers on the promises of the prophets. If someone were to ask you, why should I believe in the gospel? Why do you believe in the gospel? And why should I believe in the gospel? The what would you tell them? I hope that you would tell them exactly what the Apostle Paul says, that because in the gospel, God has delivered the promises that he made long beforehand through his prophets. It says in verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Answer them as the Apostle Paul does here by telling them, first of all, that this is an old message. This is not something that was cleverly devised by men to hold other people under their sway or under their power or to gain a foothold on them. You often hear that, that the disciples actually stole the body of Jesus Christ from the tomb and hid it so that they would have power over those who would follow them. You know, that's, that's sort of an interesting idea, isn't it? That these men were willing to lie and then die for that lie. Willing to lose their heads or be crucified upside down, as tradition has Peter being, uh, in order to have sway over people. But you see, the gospel of God is much older than that. Christianity is not some new religion or new philosophy manufactured by deceitful men. I remember uh, several years ago uh, sitting in a barber's chair, and the young man who was cutting my hair knew I was a pastor, and he said, well, you know, I used to be a Christian. I was even baptized, but I lost my faith. I started looking around, wondering if it was anywhere around us at the time, but I had to be very careful with what I was to say at this point because he had some scissors in his hand and 
And so I wanted to be careful. I wanted to leave that place looking presentable. And he said, so, and, you know, I lost my faith, uh, he said, because um, really now I've been converted to science. I no longer believe in Christianity, I believe in science, as if the two should be mutually exclusive. But he said something then very telling. He said, and what's up with the Old Testament anyway? All those sacrifices and all that blood and all the war and all the killing. You know, and that comment right there told me that this young man was absolutely and staggeringly ignorant of the teachings of the Old Testament. And I mean that in the most generous way. This young man, like many others who say that they've lost their faith, had never been taught of the consistency of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, 39 books of the Old Testament, all promises of the prophet looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all consistent, all giving details, some layering over the top of the others all focusing on the person of Jesus, either promises fulfilled at His first coming or to be fulfilled at His second coming. The human authors of the Old Testament books were God's prophets. They were God's spokesmen speaking God's words of judgment, of judgment and the promise of deliverance. The gospel of promise is the gospel in which God makes good on His promises through the prophets, promises of judgment and promises of deliverance. And yes, admittedly, as we read the Old Testament, we do read of horrible things, don't we? We read of horrible sins. We read of the horrible betrayal of human versus human. We read of the wars and the murders and the famines and the hardships and the oppressions. But you know what? All of that is meant to witness to, to our fallen human condition. To the condition that we are in because we do not want and will not have God as our King. God ruling over us. And that fallen rebellion and its condition is judged by God. It's condemned by God. All throughout the Old Testament... The prophets promise not only of deliverance, but also of the judgment that is to come because of the fallenness of human beings. Yet along with that judgment and condemnation, God also speaks into our lives through the prophets with a message of hope and promise. Can you say that with me? Promise. Say that. Let's say that. Promise. The Old Testament is a testimony of promise, God's promise through the one who would come. A promise that if a man or a woman will turn from his or her sin and rebellion against God and acknowledge God as the sovereign, the king, the loving shepherd, then there will be peace. There will be grace and peace, as Paul has said in verse 7, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God chose to speak to His people through spokesmen in the Old Testament called prophets who would faithfully communicate His message to His people. Even if that message was unpopular, even if that message brought derision and contempt, even if that message brought death to the prophets, 
Perhaps you've heard that uh, as you read Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith, it talks about men being sawed in two. The tradition has it that Isaiah himself was sawed in two by the king at that time because they didn't like the message. Jesus said, as he came to Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city who kills the prophets. Why? Because they spoke judgment, but always with that judgment they spoke hope. Hope for those who would turn and be saved, who would humbly turn to God. You know, one of the most comforting aspects of the Old Testament is its truthfulness, its veracity, and speaking out against sin. The prophets were not afraid to tell God's people that He would judge their immorality, that He would judge their idolatry. You know, when we place anything and everything above God, where God should be, He alone should be worshipped, and, and we sort of want to have God and have other things too. And, and the prophets tell us in the Old Testament that God will judge idolatry. He'll judge adultery. He'll judge drunkenness. He'll judge lying. He'll judge deceit. He'll judge spiritual complacency. And you say, well, what's so comforting about that? That's comforting? Boy, I'd hate to, hate to party with you, buddy. But here's what's comforting about the fact that God is willing to speak out about that. Because God knows that the, the, the pinnacle of His creation, human beings, will never be satisfied with any substitute that will take the place of Him. God loves us too much. Do you know that the Bible says that God is a jealous God? And He will not share us with our sin. And so it's comforting to know as we read the prophets and the promises of the prophets that God is willing to speak out about those things, to, to, to say, no, don't do that, don't hurt yourself. You know, in a former life, I don't believe in reincarnation, but in a prior day, I was a competitive runner. And because of that, I would undergo what's called massage therapy. Now say sports massage therapy with me, just so you're not confused. Sports massage therapy. You guys are much worse than my congregation at repeating when I ask you to. Let's try that again, just because I want you to know my wife's sitting here. Sports massage therapy. That is to deal with injuries and potential injuries when you're training. And so what happens in sports massage therapy is it's actually very painful. Because the massage therapist will find a point where uh, there is a buildup of scar tissue, a, a point that's prone to injury, and they will press on that so that they can help to clear out the scar tissue and revive the blood flow to that area so that that injury can heal. And it hurts when they exert pressure on that point, but it actually is healing. God's prophets were doing much the same thing as they were exerting pressure on that point of sin, the point that was going to cause injury and destruction to God's people, but only their exerting pressure on those points would cause healing as they turned to be healed by God through His forgiveness, through His loving kindness. And the prophets put pressure where sin had damaged and, and either the people would kill the prophets or they would turn and be healed 
And so this gospel of God, this good news, is totally consistent with all that the prophets spoke of God's judgment and the promise of forgiveness to those who would turn. And the important thing to remember is that the promises of the prophets all focused on the promise of a Savior, the second point that I want to bring to your attention through this passage this morning, that God's gospel, the gospel of promise, is God's deliverance on promises, promises not only of the prophets, but secondly, the promise of a Savior. Look at verse 3. Concerning, uh, that's what the prophets were talking about. They were concerned with His Son, the Savior, concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the gospel of God is as old as the promises of the prophets, even as old, listen, even as old as Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, God says that He would be faithful to raise up a seed from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Right there in the beginning, right at the time of the fall, the gospel was proclaimed of this one who would come, this Savior, this promise of a Savior was right up front. Even Even in Paul's gospel here, what he calls his gospel, the book of Romans, He says in chapter 16, verse 20, according to my gospel, he says elsewhere, and he says in 16, 20, and Satan's head will be crushed under your feet soon. Again, referring back to the promise of the prophet, reminding us that this gospel is an old message and it all looks forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Peter even says, as to this salvation, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. In other words, these prophets, as they were speaking these promises concerning this future Savior, they're scratching their head. They're saying, okay, okay, you gave us this. Now, where's he going to come from? What's he going to be like? Where's he? We, we want to know more. We got to know more. How many of you appreciate those connect the dots pictures? I love them. Okay, I'm 47, but I still love them. Because you start off with this, this smattering of dots, right? And, and they're numbered, and so you connect them uh, on the basis of their numbers, and then you get a picture, and it becomes clearer as you connect them. And that's what the prophets were trying to do. They were making careful inquiry and search as to the person and the time of Jesus Christ. But they were informed, Peter says, that, hey, it's not about you. It's about those who would be after you, who will receive these and have all of the dots and be able to connect them. And, and then Jesus Christ has come and We know Him to be the Savior of the world. In other words, the prophets were speaking the promises of God, promises that they knew focused on the promised one, the Savior. Why should people believe in the gospel? Why would you tell people that you believe in the gospel and that they should believe in the gospel? Because it is an old message from the promises of the prophets and it focuses on the Savior who has come, Jesus Christ, 
our Lord. I've got this crazy uh, slide. Can you find the one with... uh, Keep going. Now look at this. Now this is my own feeble attempt at artwork within PowerPoint. I'm sorry. Okay, maybe paint. I think I did it in paint. But think about these promises, okay, that are given in the Old Testament. First of all, the Savior is going to be the seed of a woman. All present who were born of a woman, raise your hand. Okay, so that's a little too broad, right? Next of all, we learn that the seed is going to come through Abraham. All Through Abraham's seed, all of the families of the world will be blessed. Okay, so... Uh, my feeble attempt is uh, making the eyes of the needle a little smaller. Have you ever tried to thread the eye of a needle? My grandma taught me in kindergarten. I thought it was pretty cool, and I can sew buttons on if I want. And, and, and yet, the smaller the eye of the needle, the harder it is to do, right? And so, as these promises were given in the Old Testament, they were very broad. Okay, there's a lot of people who descended from Abraham and Israel, But then it narrows significantly to the tribe of Judah as God gives a promise to David that one would always be not only from the tribe of Judah, but from the line of David on the throne. And so then it continues to narrow down. Oh, it's going to be a seed of David. Oh, it's going to be a virgin. Oh, it's going to he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so as we see these promises, they focus on all on the person of Jesus Christ. You know, it's been said that you can go on, you can, re- you can remove that so that we don't have to look at my poor artwork, okay? It's been said that uh, to, to have fulfilled just eight of those prophecies about Jesus, like the virgin birth, the being born in the tribe of Judah, being born of the line of David, being born in Bethlehem, to just have fulfilled eight of those is like uh, filling the entire state of Texas. What do you know about the state of Texas? It's big. Thank you. He's a plant. It's big, and it'd be like taking the entire state of Texas and filling it up two feet with silver dollars and marking one of those 100 quadrillion. Did you know that was a word, quadrillion? When you were a kid, did you like make up words like bazillion and trillion and gazillion. Quadrillion is a word, I guess. Taking one of those 100 quadrillion silver dollars and marking it specially and taking a blindfold man and letting, letting him loose in the state of Texas to reach down and pick one and finding that one. That's just eight of those messianic prophecies, not to mention the hundreds that are given. And so uh, this Savior had been promised and Paul wants us to understand that He is the one, first of all, by telling us that He is the promised Savior who is a descendant of David according to the flesh. In other words, we can have confidence in the gospel because of God's promises being fulfilled. And one of them was that the Savior would be, according to the flesh, a descendant of David. Do you remember the promise that was given to David that God would build a house for him and that one from his family would always be seated on that throne. That's why the Gospels begin, several of them, or at least contain the, the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Paul says to Timothy, this is so important because it shows that God is a promise keeper. He says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, 
risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Why? Because God is a promise keeper. When God makes a promise, beloved, God keeps it. God promised David an eternal throne, a throne that would be occupied by a descendant of David. But secondly, he promised that he would be a savior. Look at verse 4. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate this detail called the virgin birth, right? And unfortunately, there are many within professing Christendom that say that that is no longer an essential part of the message. But it is because it shows that God is a promise keeper. What's more, it shows that God was able to fulfill not only this being, having been descended from David by uh, having Mary, a descendant of David, be the mother, but God was able to avoid Jesus' connection with original sin. We learn in the Gospels that the power of the Holy Spirit came over Mary and she conceived a child and he would be called because of his holiness, the Son of God. So no connection. Did you know that Jesus Christ was born as a human being, fully human and fully God, and yet without sin, without a sinful nature? without that connection of original sin that all have been born uh, with. David would say in Psalm 51, Surely I was a sinner when I was conceived. From the point of conception, every other human being has shared in the sinfulness of Adam. How do we know that Jesus was the Son of God? How do we know that he was holy because verse 4 tells us that he was declared Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Yesterday there was one of those programs on TV, uh, National Geographic TV, who really killed Jesus and uh, all of this stuff and my son Wilson, who's six years old, he had a friend over and they were playing and they were sitting at the table sort of within eye and ear shot of the TV and Wilson turned to his friend and said, Cole, did you know that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose again? And Cole started to talk to him about that. I thought, praise God, a little evangelist right there. Why is it that when we get older, we stop telling our friends about that? we become more ashamed of those details and and we're not as quick to tell people about them. Why is it? Well, because we forget about the promise-keeping nature of the gospel. That this is the greatest promise that has ever been made or will ever be made and we ought to rumor it abroad. We ought to noise it about. Everywhere we go, we ought to be set apart for the work of the gospel Because this is the Savior. He is in power. Paul is telling us that Jesus Christ has been raised to be installed into power. We learn that if He would give His life through Isaiah 53, if He would give His life as an atonement, He would ransom many. We learn in Philippians chapter 2 that because He was obedient to God to the point of death, even death on the cross, that God has given Him a name which is above every name. 
so that at every at his name every knee will bow on in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord have you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord have you recognized the promises of the gospel being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and have you professed Jesus Christ as Lord scriptures say that if you believe that he rose from the dead and you profess or confess with your mouth that he's Lord, you will be saved. Paul tells us that he was raised as a vindication of his spirit of holiness. He says, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is best taken as referring to the spirit of Jesus Christ, not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is nowhere in Scripture called the spirit of holiness, but rather... The resurrection was the vindication of Christ's sinlessness, His holiness, and the mere fact that when He gave His life, He gave it as an atonement for you and for me. They celebrated the anniversary of the, uh, of the thermos. And they were interviewing people to say, well, what do you think about this wonderful invention of the thermos? People were mildly appreciative of the thermos, but they asked one guy and he said, you know, it's really quite amazing. You put something hot in it, it stays hot. You put something cold in it, it stays cold. How does it know? How does it know what to do? We could have asked the same thing if Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead. How would we know that our sins had been forgiven? How would we know that we had been cleansed? How would we know that there had been an available impartation of the divine life into those who believe? It's because He rose from the dead. And because He rose from the dead, God has given Him a name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, that brings us to the third promise of the gospel that Paul places before us. It's one of my favorite it's the promise of reconciliation. That not only is the, is the gospel the promise of the prophets about the promise of the Savior, but those promises bring about this last promise, this promise of reconciliation. Look at verse 5. It says, Through whom we have received, this is through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His namesake. To bring about the obedience of faith. Reconciliation. If you were to reduce the gospel down to a soundbite, which is so common today, that describes what happens when someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, what soundbite would that be? I want to suggest to you that a wonderful soundbite that would reduce the gospel to the essential byproduct of faith in Jesus Christ is reconciliation. Reconciliation with God. The gospel which was announced beforehand about the singular exalted Savior is all about reconciling mankind with God who created all. The Bible tells us that all of mankind has rebelled against God. The Bible says that all of mankind has willfully chosen to 
live lives of disobedience against God, to shake our fists against God, and to tell Him that we will not have Him rule over us. That's what the Bible says. It says that we're enemies or we are at enmity with God. And you and I may not have literally shaken our fist at God, but we do figuratively shake our fist at God each time we disobey, each time we disregard God's commands. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 says that God says to His people, you've committed two sins. You've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and you've Second one is you've hewn for yourself cisterns, broken cisterns that won't hold water. You're trying to satisfy your eternal thirst with things that will not satisfy it. Idols, idolatry. Psalm 51.4 reminds us that when we do that, when we sin in whatever it is, we may sin against others, but ultimately we sin against God. David says after he had uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba after he had had her husband killed, after he had lied about it, he says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. You see, when we break one of God's commands, we hurt other people, but ultimately we sin against God. It shows our rebellion against God. And the Bible says that that rebellion is worked out in our lives through disobedience and disregard for God's commands. And the amazing thing about the gospel, listen, the amazing thing about the gospel is that God, having been so offended, offers reconciliation. God offers reconciliation to us through the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. What is reconciliation? It's a restoration of harmony. It's a restoration of harmony between two parties, restoring right relationships. In this case, between the two who are at enmity with one another, who are at war. In this case, returning us in reconciliation to a creator God and creation man status where we recognize that we are created for God's glory, not to live out our lives for our own. Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. But you need to know that when God reconciles a man or a woman to Himself, it only happens through faith. Through faith, placed in the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham says to Isaac, God will supply the lamb. God will supply a substitute. John the Baptist looks at Jesus Christ during his beginning of his ministry and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. God has offered reconciliation through the person of His Son, and that is the promise of the gospel. And when you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ as the Lamb who is the substitute for your sins, for my sins, God imparts not only forgiveness, but look at the verse again. Look at verse 5. 
Through that faith that we place in Jesus Christ, God imparts an obedient spirit. Why is it not enough to tell people that they can have their sins forgiven through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection? Because you need to tell them that when they place their faith in Jesus Christ, it is calling them to a obedient relationship. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Salvation does not simply buy us our get-out-of-jail-free card. Salvation renders to us an obedient spirit to the things of God. Paul said that he was set apart for the good news, the good news of reconciliation. The good news that focuses on a Savior who was promised long beforehand, who can restore a right relationship between the Creator and the created. The gospel is good news because despite the fact that we deserve eternal hell, God has chosen to eternally forgive. Isaiah 53.6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to our own way. But God has placed the burden of your iniquity and my iniquity upon Him. Have you been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? Here's the thing about reconciliation. It's between two parties, and the two parties have to sit down at the table. The two parties have to come together. If you've been reconciled to God through the blood of His Son as your substitute, then you can praise God and you need not grow in love with the promises, the false promises of this world that tend to distract us from the business at hand, and that is to extend the kingdom to those around us. But if you have not been reconciled to God through the blood of the Lamb, then what is stopping you? Maybe you're here today and you've been a churchgoer for quite some time, but you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You're hoping that playing the Christian game might make your life a little better. It might give you, afford you the blessings that Christians seem to uh, speak about. But you've never recognized that to give your life to Christ is to be bought with a price and your life is no longer your own. If you're here this morning and that's your status, then I would call you to a reconciled relationship with Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how? What does that look like? What it looks like is to realize that you and I are rebellious creatures and we've sinned against a holy God. And our sin carries a judgment and that is death. Scripture says it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. But God provided a substitute if you would only reach out and receive him. And so you would recognize that you are a sinner who has offended a holy God, but you would recognize by faith that Jesus Christ hung on the cruel cross for your sins, for my sins. And you would by faith impart that substitution for yourself to say, God, I believe that when Jesus Christ died, he was dying for me. And I receive him and I want to turn my life back to you. I want to come into a relationship which is reconciled with you whereby I can become more obedient by faith. Did, did you notice what I said, more obedient by faith? 
I was talking to my daughter yesterday about some behavior that needed to change. And I said, will, will you change that behavior? And she said something that was so precious. I was sh- surprised. I was shocked by it. She said, I'll try. She wanted to. But you know, it's only by God's grace that we can live lives that are obedient and pleasing to God. I'm not telling you that you need to live a perfect life. You need to desire to live a perfect life. And God would receive that faith, that faith that places as its focus the Savior that was promised long before through the prophets and affords reconciliation for all who believe. Let's bow our heads as we close this message. And as you bow your heads, I specifically want to pray for those who may be here and may this very morning desire to turn their lives over to Jesus Christ, to give their lives to Christ. Father, I pray for anyone who's here this morning who has come perhaps out of habit, but perhaps by chance, by your leading, Lord, what seems like chance to them is actually your leading. And Father, I pray that their hearts would be convicted. Father, it's your Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. And we pray that even this morning you would do that to at least one. And Father, that they would cry out for reconciliation because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that they would receive his death as the substitute for their own. That they would turn from their rebellious ways and desire to be obedient, an obedience that comes from faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that as they cry out to you that you would cleanse them. Your word says, your son says that all who are drawn to himself, he will by no means cast out. And So Father, we rejoice to think that there may be someone here this morning that would do that. Father, for those of us who have already been reconciled. Father, let us never grow weary in doing good, knowing that at the proper time, we indeed will reap a harvest. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.